Hi, I'm Roland Philippe Kretschmar and welcome to The Art Bystander, a podcast about contemporary and future art. I'm super excited today because I have Brittany Leanne Williams with me, a fantastic artist, and Catherine Costial, who is a renowned gallerist. You know, the basis for this conversation is basically that Brittany has an upcoming show at a fantastic really dreamy, huge castle in Sweden called Stora Sundby. But before we get into that, um, Brittany and Catherine, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Just for the sake of the listeners, we have a fourth participant with us, a fifth participant with us today, and that's my dog. Uh, but since he's called Picasso, I think we can excuse him for being part of the conversation about art today. <laughs> I just wanted to uh, be in the open about that. Uh, but listen, um, let's start, Brittany, with, uh, you know, who you are, you know, your background. And then, you know, it would be really, really interesting to understand, you know, what brings you to this uh, castle in Sweden. Um, I'm originally from California. Um, I identify with being a painter. Um, I don't even, I'm trying to recall how me and Carl's paths originally crossed, but I think a, a couple years ago, I was in a residency in London. Um, and so, and Carl just mentioned Stora Sundby as an option, and that um, blossomed into the opportunity that I'm now about to show um, this week. So, mm. All right, mm-hmm. but listen, let's let's get back to Pasadena. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, how how come you became an artist? Was there a specific, uh, you know, inspiration or driving force or, you know, give us a bit of context. Though. Yeah, so I talked about I've talked about this in past interviews. I um in grade school was diagnosed with um dyslexia. I was struggling pretty um pretty roughly in the in the classroom setting. And so, um specifically with reading and writing. And um, my mother was convinced that the way to kind of uh, intervene and kind of create a sense of um, confidence and esteem was to find something else I could master. And so um, we tried a few things, but at the time we were going to art nights at the Norton Simon. Um, And that was my kind of first introduction into the masters, specifically Monet and Magritte. And I wanted, yeah, to to play with materials in a way where I could create magic. And so they put me in art classes and I really took to it. Hmm. Were you drawn to painting initially? I mean, you yes, you mentioned that. But I mean, did, were, were you kind of open on the dis- discipline in the beginning? And why did you choose painting as your main kind of uh, practice at the end of it? Yeah, so it wasn't painting originally. The art classes mm. I had been um, put into really hyper-focused actually on being great draftsmen first. So drawing was everything. And knowing how to break down a composition or an image. Um, but I think my... Uh, personal desire or my passion was fostered from seeing these excellent paintings and wanting to pursue excellence as well. Um, and so in time, like in these art classes, they, they sequenced it out. So you, you did drawing to like pastels to, to oil paint. And, and so that was kind of my journey with that. Mm. Okay, let's get back to your art um, a bit later. But Catherine, welcome mm. to the show as well. Um, Thank you. I introduced you as a renowned gallerist. Is that correct? <laughs> <laughs> if you wanted to be. Um, 
I suppose so. Yes. I mean, I'm. Uh, I work uh, with my husband Carl, um, and the gallery is uh, yeah, Carl Costiel Gallery. It's really his gallery. Um, he's very much the driving force behind it, and he's built it up over the last 22 years because I've. Um, I've only recently joined him in the last three years, in fact, because prior to that, um, I had a, rather a different trajectory in the art world. I was, um, I've done, I think, pretty much everything it's possible to do in the art world. I've, uh, I've uh, been a curator at a public institution called the South London Gallery. Um, it's one of the five kind of Kunsthalle uh, or Kunsthallers in London. Um, I worked for Christie's uh, for seven years, uh, running their contemporary sales, um, and I uh, ran. I worked for a gallery as a sales director for seven years and artist liaison, and then most recently, prior to uh, teaming up with Carl, I was. Um, I had a partnership with Jay Jopling at the gallery White Cube in London and Hong Kong, whereby. Um, I devised a, a kind of a plan to um, to look at artists I felt had been overlooked um, or who'd fallen off the, the the radar somehow, having nonetheless done something of great interest during their careers. So for six years, I researched and dug up artists that I personally found interesting, but who I knew um, or I was aware um of the fact that there was a sort of whispering in the marketplace of re reignited interest in their practice. Um, and I would dig up works from private collections and retired art dealers um, and try to fish in silence and buy them back slowly, slowly, and put together an exhibition of um, that particular body of work that had made, you know, perhaps the first impact um, in their careers, um, Gunter Ferg, Park Subo, uh, Minjung Kim, Dora Maurer, the Hungarian avant-garde artist, um, Lee Sung Tak, um, Peter Schuf, many. Um, and uh, that was a very different practice, sort of at the other end of the spectrum, because Carl's focus has always been, uh, focus, not just focus, but complete obsession has always been, um, I suppose, the new and emerging, um, not for its own sake, but because um, he has a very entrepreneurial spirit and, and he's a brilliant strategist. So I think he's, um, he likes to go, he, an enormous curiosity. So he likes to go where the energy is, you know, where he senses there's interesting energy, you know, and he likes to show art that is generationally relevant. Um, that's fundamental to the program. Um, so I, you know, I started out 25 years ago working with very young artists, but my career has sort of taken me progressively <laughs> into the older generations. And now I'm kind of coming full circle and going back. And I find it absolutely fascinating. It's, um, uh, you know, being able to bring to bear my experience on what Carl is doing uh, is, is a is a, is a is a real journey for me uh, intellectually and um, and also from a sort of very practical in point of view of being super engaged with all the artists that we work with and of course Brittany is is well an example of that um, it's uh, it's been a very exciting journey that we've been on to put this show together so 
that's a really fascinating uh, background you have, Catherine. But out of curiosity, so how did you decide to, to work with Carl? I mean, it's uh, husband-wife relationships <laughs> uh, professionally. You know, it uh, could yeah, be a I mean, challenge. I, yes, uh, it's of course it's a challenge. Um, I mean. I can't count the number of times we've been asked during our during the last sort of 30 years, why don't you two work together? And I was like, isn't it enough to be married? You know, um, it's kind of an it was it just happened very organically, to be perfectly honest, um, during COVID, um, where my projects were sort of put on ice. You know, obviously, I mean, no momentum. No, no there was no momentum. There was no possibility to do exhibitions. There was a reluctance to invest, you know, all of these things because everyone was in a state of total crisis obviously and you know galleries were closed and so while I was sort of twiddling my thumbs thinking right well you know what do I do now um I had many irons in the fire but I couldn't realize them because everything was shut uh so I just sort of fell into giving Carl a hand really um and it's been a really interesting journey so far because we have very complementary skills and experience. So I don't pretend to do or know what Carl does or knows and 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 vice versa. So we, we tend to take care of very different aspects of the of the gallery um, business. And um, and I really enjoy what I'm doing. I get very immersed in the artists. Um, I, I write a lot. I produce books. I do a lot of kind of, I suppose, for want of a better expression, artist liaison um, and representing the gallery and uh, working with institutions as well. Um, because there's already an existing infrastructure for managing other aspects of the gallery business. Um, and Carl is, is, you know, remains absolutely the kind of, aesthetic driving force behind the program um but it works quite well i mean it's taken us a while to find our level i will admit um but i think we're there now and it's actually very nice to work hmm. for the family business as yeah. it were. i you know to bring everything that i've done in my career to bear on something that we're building together and i think it makes us quite um a, well, I mean, without sounding uh, boastful, but I think it's quite powerful to have two people who are so completely dedicated and interconnected, you know, working to build uh, a project like ours, because the gallery is rather different from perhaps, well, a lot of the galleries that I'm familiar with, you know, in that we really, over the years, have built a kind of sense of community amongst our artists. Um, and we do something called the draw jam every year um, yeah, which Brittany, mm. Brittany came on and we had so much fun and that's actually but I really got to know you Brittany I mean that's when we really had a chance to to talk and um and uh, it's a rather special thing where we we invite uh artists from all over the world artists that we've worked with in the past that we rep or who we represent artists that we're going to do projects with in the future um I mean, really from all over the world. So this year we were, last year, sorry, we were, I think, 38 artists in total. Um, and we are, we do it every year in the south of Italy. Um, and this last year we were hosted by friends of ours in Calabria, uh, in a nearer town called Crotone. So it's Magna Grecia, basically. It's an incredible part of the country, but, you know, not a, not a place that people go it's sort of very far off the, the tourist trail. Um, and every day we get together 
and sit and draw together and obviously eat fantastic food and go swimming in the sea and uh can i join you this year (laughs) (laughs) sounds fantastic Uh, it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like a summer camp for artists (laughs) Ah, it's a bit like that but but what's really nice is that what's come out of that because we've been doing we did it for three years um and then covid hit so we weren't able to to do it for a couple of years so last year was the sort of comeback um and it was the biggest one we've done so far and everybody i think the most powerful thing that comes out of it is um new relationships and friendships that are formed but sometimes quite unlikely friendships you know that you wouldn't necessarily have put a couple two artists together you know but it's it's an it's eye-opening for all of us but um I imagine particularly for um, the artists to be able to um, have that experience of sitting next to each other and just, you know, even if drawing isn't really part of your practice, you know, because it isn't a given that everybody draws, but that's not the point. The point is more to kind of make something and just be together. Um, and uh, what we did this year, we always, um, you know, in years prior, it was more of a sort of ad hoc casual relaxed thing we would do a little exhibition at the end a very informal exhibition in you know a, a 13th century church or in, in even in the vineyard one year we did it where we clipped all the drawings on onto string and sort of strung them through the vineyards you know and had a big event with all local people and then if we managed to sell anything locally then that money would be then donated to a local charity this year we were much more coordinated partly because we had to be because we had so many artists um and it's quite nice to have a focal point um and whilst we wanted we usually want to give back to the place where we are actually doing the draw jam but this year because of the situation in the ukraine we felt that was a sort of overriding concern so um we ran an instagram campaign to sell the drawings that were made during the draw jam and we raised enough money to buy a relief truck um that goes from a place called Satumare, uh, which is on the, the Romanian-Ukrainian um, border. And it's run by um, a charity called the Order of Malta Volunteers. And um, they have an existing infrastructure there. And my husband and daughter had been there helping pack up, sort and pack a lot of the goods that had been um, donated, uh, mainly by um, the Italians, um, to then bring them into the Ukraine um, and so it was a very tangible thing you know we we thought okay well we can do this thing for three days together and it has this you know very positive um, and important result so that was you know that's something that uh, the reason I'm explaining this in some detail is just because it's a very unusual thing to do these days and I think um, when you look at the important dealers in in history in particular you know the 20th century uh this sense of bringing artists together you know artists they used to be sort of artistic communities in places because artists were sort of freaks you know (laughs) i mean you know if you found like-minded souls you stuck together you know and um I mean, freaks is an exaggeration, but I was just thinking of what Peter Schuff told me about the, the East Village in the 1980s. You know, he's like, we all stuck out like sore thumbs. You know, it was a tiny world then, much, much smaller than it is now. 
And now, of course, with social media, everyone's connected all the time, but they're not really. You know, you, the artists, by, by definition, lead very solitary existences. You spend most of your time alone in your studio um, and very often are by nature introverted. Um, not necessarily, but it's not uh, impossible to imagine that if you need to be. Brittany, do you agree on this? Do, do you agree that uh, artists are introverted and freaks? <laughs> No, um, that's so not I'm what I exaggerating. Do. <laughs> I'm exaggerating. <laughs> what I do agree with is is what Catherine's kind of speaking to, where there is something to um, being in a, a location or a space that would foster um, the magic of just conversation, right? So, like Gina Beavers and me sitting by the water talking about something random that leads to a really interesting conversation about our work you know I think that um what Catherine is talking about uh, uh, with Draw Jam is it's providing just an incubation space without any pressure to yes make work and yes fundraise but also to allow for art collisions to be happening or artist collisions where yes the freak or the weirdness or whatever you want to call it is allowed to just be um in this very beautiful space and just share ideas or, or laugh with each other. That does something, I think, to the work, but also to the life of the artist. Mm. Before we get back to, to, to your work, Whitney, I just, just out of curiosity and a brief answer, Catherine. <laughs> when I f- first saw, saw this uh, collaboration with Order Malta, I thought it was, um, of course, you know, from a caritative point of view, fantastic. But I was also a bit surprised, given that it's, it's a thousand-year-old Catholic, uh, you know, order, um, which is in stark contrast to the to, to contemporary art world that you're operating in. Can you give us a context of that kind of collaboration? Why you decided to work with Order of Malta specifically? Uh, through a friend, very simple. We were connected to them via friends. And also, um, I will just say very quickly that when you do this kind of thing, um, I, I know quite a lot of people who work in the, in, for the UN and for other... Um, and for, for, for relief organizations that have been forced to be extremely active there. And um, I think it's very important to work with local organizations that are already established and, uh, of course, totally trustworthy and that you can, um, where you can make a tangible impact, concrete, you know, I, I, not giving, not subscribing and giving money to a larger organization that's probably going to go and be spent on leafleting or something. You know, it's important if you've got, you know, a, a chunk of change to give, uh, it's nice to be able to um, realize something very tangible um, and to see it in action. That was why. And, uh, you know, one can't, one can't sort of... Um, one can't get too bogged down in uh, the nature of the organization because the, the reality is those are the people who are, who are stepping up. <laughs> Clear. Yes. That's, okay. That's, that's my answer. Brittany, uh, given this, that this is a podcast, obviously, uh, if you're a listener, uh, it's hard to kind of understand um, what kind of art you do unless you describe it for us. So how would you describe your art? Yeah, I mean, I so I, I love hate this question. I think it's a necessary evil, but <laughs> we should always be just looking at the work rather than explaining it. But um, but uh, yeah, I like I said, I'm a painter. Um, I I work in a lot of ranges, but mostly large scale. 
Um, and um, f since 2017, I've been thinking about this bent figure, or originally my interest was looking at this tired, uh, draped figure. And it's very much evolved since then. I'm now thinking about this bent back, at, um, or almost like this figure is shape-shifting. So thinking about... Um, yeah, uh, how this bent back is um, a representative of architecture or um, uh, a bridge, uh, but but really thinking about this posture speaking to the woman's experience, um, and it is a black figure but rendered red, and it's been that way since two thousand seventeen as well. I I got back from a residency. Um, that was in the, uh, like a rural space. And when I got back to the city, I was struck by the ambulance siren. And really, there's some, there was something so seductive about this red pulsing light. In the US, our ambulance siren is red. Um, but this red pulsing light having the ability to choreograph space and time, right? To, to get uh, the viewer or the public to slow down and take note. Um, it was it was attention grabbing, and I wanted that for these bent figures that I was rendering. And so from there, um, the body became red, um, or or I started uh, speaking about blackness through the color red. I would say now I have just a, a strong formal relationship with red. I've been committed to it ever since, and I think um, red is both a conceptual interest and a formal interest for me. And then these figures are often in these uh, surreal slash emotional landscapes. So I'm, I'm often thinking about, you know, um, these sites being uh, representations of psychological states or emotional states. So I asked myself, like, if grief was a place, what's a, what is the geography of that place? What's the climate of that space? What's the temperature? And then what's even the cause and effect that that site might have on a body in the same way that a de the desert might affect mm -hmm. the skin with sunburn, right? So mm -hmm. thinking about how these psychological and emotional spaces could actually uh, cause the body to have, yeah, to impact the body. Um, and then specifically for the work that's at Store Sunbee, I'm continuing the conversation, but I'm looking at um, this biblical narrative between Jacob and the angel wrestling. Um, the reason why I even came upon that passage or was reminded of that passage was Zadie Smith's On Beauty. She speaks about a painting, um, uh, one specific painting of, 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 of Jacob wrestling the angel. But I, I, when I started to Google it, I was shocked at how, how, <laughs> how throughout history all these painters have like, um, yeah, uh, played with this allegory. Um, and for me, I was most interested in, in how the, re the repetitive nature of this angel that's rendered is like clothed in this cloak. And hmm. um, I became very um, interested in, I don't know if you can redact a portion of it, but like redacting the angel and allowing this uh, invisible force or the psychological moment that I think is really what the allegory is about. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to start there. And so that's where the work mm -hmm. really starts from. It's like 
that that these red figures are are engaging with something something um there's a happening a shift and uh um and it's violent even i don't know if you're familiar with this narrative but like jacob walks away with a broken hip and a new name and there's something really interesting about this violent exchange leading to this transformative moment where he never views himself as the same um mm. and so there's elements of that narrative that i'm interested in for these red figures i'm mining can i ask you out of curiosity, how, how important or not is the space in which your art is, is, kind of hangs? Uh, I mean, I, the reason I'm asking is obviously Stora Sundby is, is a very opulent uh, private castle, you know, and then usually you kind of, um, at least the first time you exhibit something, it would be in a white boxed gallery space. And then obviously you never know where, where the art kind of ends up. But how, how important is it for you as an artist where your art finally kind of ends up hanging? So I feel like I want to like fracture myself with this question. I think um, for the health of the artist or even for mm. the for my own health, I don't want to uh, occupy my mind with the, these thoughts when I'm in the studio. I think it could kill the work and it can <laughs> kill kill my spirit. But I, yeah. but I think that there was an, uh, an immediate excitement around Stora Sundby because um, I, I view the white cube trying to pretend that it's this neutral space to allow the work to, to be what it is. Um, and Story Assembly is not that. It's I think my work being in that space does two things. It it gives Story Assembly a second life and then it gives my work a second life, right? Mm, like it's almost yeah. like um yeah, I, allowing just by putting these two things side by side in interesting comparison and, and contrast without really being explicit or agenda based. We're just placing something in this site that is conflated with meaning and my work is conflated with meaning and then something happens. And I, I find that really exciting. So. Um, yeah, when Carl and Catherine brought up the opportunity, I was like, yes, like I want uh, yeah, to give my work another life, even though this, in many ways, this show is really awkward and how it's managed and that like, you know, it's, it's, it's a very short show. It's like, in, it's further out of a city, city, like city central space, but it's worth it because, um, yeah, I think we're cultivating something that is magical and special and kind of once in a lifetime opportunity type thing. So, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I, I like um, I like that uh, kind of context that you're giving uh, about giving both your work and Stora uh, Sundby a second life, kind of. Catherine, <laughs> uh, can you elaborate a little bit on why and I mean, when did you start the collaboration with Stora Sundby? Because you, you've done a few different things there. Uh, why that came about and also how come you, you, you wanted to work with Britney specifically at Stora Sundby? We've done one project so far at Stora um, and... Um, the owners of the castle, Maurits um, and Ida Sophia Klingspor, um, are friends of ours. And um, the original idea came up literally as a sort of uh, conversation, you know, wouldn't it be great if? Um, and it was thrilling, you know, to find that Maurits and Ida Sophia were, were open to the idea and actually very enthused by it because... Um, they see themselves very much as custodians of this extraordinary, magical place. Um, 
And to give a bit of context to your listeners um, who may or may not know the castle or what it looks like, um, it's the most extraordinary um, architectural phenomenon to find in Sweden because the, uh, it's mm. a romantic castle and um, it, it, it didn't always look the way it, it looks now. Um, and it has, I think, the foundations of the um, original fort uh, on the lake, forgive my pronunciation, but I'm not even going to try. begins with an H, and then there's a J, Hjalmaren or whatever. Hjalmaren, yeah. Hjalmaren, yeah. thank you very much. So I, I'm embarrassed by how terrible my Swedish is after years of being married to Carl. But anyway, the foundations of the original castle date back to um, the 14th century, um, but the, the castle um, in its present location was um, built in the 15th century. But in the 19th, in the, sorry, yes, in the early 19th century, um, uh, through marriage, the castle passed to um, Count and Countess de Yer and um, Ulrika de Yer, who was obviously much loved by her husband, um, said, I don't really fancy living in this sort of, you know, rather severe place. And she, like, Many uh, people of her generation were much enamoured of Sir Walter Scott's Ivanhoe. And uh, she said, I want a romantic castle, you know, which is aligned with the stars and etc., etc." So uh, it took 22 years to transform uh, the castle into what it is today. Um, so you have four towers that represent the four seasons. You have small, 12 smaller turrets that represent the months of the year, th 52 rooms, for the weeks of the year, and 365 windows. So there's this kind of extraordinary mad symmetry in this castle. Yeah, <laughs> because, yeah it's beautiful. You know, usually mm. the windows, of course, were also something that um, is a huge display of one's wealth and status because uh, windows are notoriously expensive and also they let in cold. So, you know, it's, uh, it's a sort of... Uh, wild baroque um demonstration of one's kind of status and power although that's not i suppose um uh, that certainly wasn't um her intention i think initially but mm. anyway the the um, the current owners maritz and ida sofia you know they really uh, are a thousand percent dedicated to um making the place alive um very de they they had it's extremely it's a very active estate and i don't want to speak on their behalf particularly but um i they're they're very active environmentally the parks are open to the public um they host many many events um and they're very active it's a very it's a huge there's a large amount of land attached to the castle and it's farmed and it's a you know it's a going concern it's a business um so Whilst the um, interiors of the castle are not formally open to the public, they do have guided tours and this kind of thing. Um, but it really came about as something that is very precious and uh, quite hard to define, which really, Brittany, you expressed it beautifully, that, that um, what happens when an artist enters a space like that and is able to, is allowed to intervene i mean bearing in mind that they take down half their family portraiture in order for these shows to happen and their paintings are hanging on brocade silk wallpaper that's mm. 200 years old you know so it's a very it's an incredibly special opportunity to be able to intervene in that way in that space it, and and they've been phenomenally generous in allowing us 
to do it. Um, but really what's happening is this kind of alchemy um, between um, the artists and their practice and the existing space, which is steeped in history. And something that um, we haven't talked about yet, but I think ideas of memory and identity and uh, you know the differing status of genders, races, etc., mm -hmm. um, are so present in Britney's practice. You know, the, the paintings are unbelievably powerful. I mean, this, it's really hard to communicate um, the impact of color. Um, the palette that you use, Brittany, is so uh, totally immersive um, and strange. You know, they're sort of almost hallucinatory. They occupy this liminal space um, with small nods to a, a sort of classical interpretation of landscape and the figure, but, you know, completely turned on its head. So they become almost metaphysical. And to be able to um, install this work in that context where you're surrounded by centuries of faces of other histories, you know, and privilege is, uh, becomes very interesting. And... Um, and, 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 you know, a point of departure for a really interesting conversation about, um, about our present, I suppose. And I think, uh, you know, talking about why, you know, how we came together. I mean, as with all things, with, with most of the artists that we work with, in fact, probably all of them, you know, um, I've talked earlier about Carl's... Uh, sort of mission in life you know what mm -hmm. drives him what, what gets him out of bed in the morning um is uh this sort of hunger and curiosity for what's out there that's interesting you know and interesting and robust um and uh, where the energy is um and which artists amongst the thousands and thousands of artists that are making work today are are the ones who have something really poignant and important to say somehow um, either, and I'm not talking about necessarily politically, I mean artistically, um, all of it. Um, and one artist often leads to another, and, you know, it, it's talking again about community. You know, that's, that's how it, if you've been completely immersed in a world for almost 30 years, of course you know, you know, you know a lot of people, you have a very large network, and um, you trust the artists that you um admire and work with you know and if they say you should really look at this or you should really check out this or go go and see this friend of mine you know who's in a studio somewhere in the middle of america you know carl will happily do it he'll drive for two days you know <laughs> to go and see an artist in a studio mm. that's what he loves to do mm. and um uh, you know it was very clear that what britney is doing you know your practice britney is so um sort of out of time and place in in the sense that it doesn't have to it doesn't feel like post-digital art it's you know it's not particularly engaged in that it's engaged with more timeless concerns i think more human concerns um and i think that's what makes it so interesting uh now you know in this moment that we're in and i think that um you know what do what do the what is an artist, you know, what, what can they really give us? You know, they give us at, at best, at the most, the sort of most elevated um, uh, experience is to help us understand our present. And that's, 
that sounds like a simple thing, but it's absolutely not. You know, mm. people, of course, can talk about the future. They can analyze the past, but understanding our enormously complex present is very, very difficult. So, you know, an artist like Brittany um, showing in this context um, helps helps that happen, you know, helps that conversation happen. So that's really why um, we're so excited about this collaboration. Brittany, from where do you draw your inspiration then as an artist? I mean, I understand that Carl and Catherine, you're, you're you know, kind of, as you say, immersed in, into the now and, and into the next. But um, Brittany, where, where do you draw your inspiration from? Um, yeah, I think that that's always moving. That's hard. It's not stationary. So, um, I mean, funnily enough, I was like um, texting a, a painter friend here and saying that like if I lived in Sweden for six months, I would make blue painting <laughs> just because the sky is like, there's just a, a like constant blue. I mean, I loved some of the things that um, Catherine touched on and what she just said. And I, I wonder if like a lot of my, like trying to speak about the now is just really being um, really present, <laughs> like with the people I'm with or with myself. And I don't know if that's like, a very sexy answer for like what I'm inspired by. I could list artists and I certainly have, yeah, individuals that have um, impacted me, but I, um, we are living in a really incredible moment, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and that can be a, like from technology to an innovation, to the political hour, to the globe. I mean, how globally collect connected we all are. Um, and so, yeah, I think if I could, um, if if I could seek out truth in such a in, in such a really distracting moment historically, I I want to. And, and you had a collaboration with the Joan F uh, Mitchell Foundation. Yeah, how did that come about? So there was no collaboration. They they actually gave me a really incredible grant that um, mm -hmm. uh, was um, really uh, really shifted my career. I. Um, I was in Chicago at the time, and you you can't even apply for the, the grant. You have to be invited to even apply. So, um, fantastic, yeah. yeah, it was fantastic, and I think that it's a um, it's a I could do whatever I wanted with the funds, right? And so um, the fact that that the grant wasn't uh, didn't yeah I didn't have to um, I could pour it into where I felt like it needed to go, um, and so that's when I got the biggest studio I had ever had. This was in mm -hmm. 2018 and, and scaled up a lot of, um, it, it felt at the time with <laughs> where was that? It felt like a, a miracle. Like it really opened the door and lifted the ceiling um, for what was possible in my career at that moment. Out of curiosity, how much or not did um, the pandemic impact your work, Brittany? Um, I love labor. And um, I think, yeah, I think the pandemic did a lot of things to a lot of different people. But for me, it, um, it allowed for a quieting mm -hmm. um, and a room for labor, like making something beautiful. If, if I can't do anything else with my time, if I am kind of stuck to the house, if everything outside of my door my studio door is scary if sickness is like in the air and there's this kind of constant hysteria everyone's in what a good time to lean into a surface and be there for many hours and so i would say um i made a lot of 
work and um, lived a very quiet life, as many people did. I'm mm -hmm. very blessed to say I was like financially sound. You know, so many people, there was so much, many different types of insecurity, financial mm -hmm. and housing. But I leaned into the work at that time. Mm. I mean, this is maybe a stupid question, but hey, <laughs> here we go. Do you have a, a goal as an artist, like a life goal or a mission or? Yeah, that's a hard question. I think that that's, again, that's something that's always moving as I evolve. Like, I've, I, I mean, when I was in high school, the biggest goal was to go to Skohegan and then, then I went, you know, so like, I think that it's always um, a moving goal. Yeah, there's a, always a moving goal of where um, I want to go. I think right now, what what would be really special is to continue to live a life that surprises me. Story mm -hmm. Sunby, this opportunity with Catherine and Carl, it surprised me. And I want to live a life. I think that's a really great way to be romantic to myself, like mm -hmm. to, to love myself that way. And so this opportunity feels like that. So I hope uh, that I'll have more opportunities that yeah, touch me in that way. Hmm. So, Kathy, what is driving you in the future? So many things. Uh, <laughs> I think um, what I'm enjoying most now uh, is just being fully immersed in the uh, in the opportunity to to help guide, steer, strategize, you know, artists' careers at this pivotal moment. You know, we, we work with a lot of artists, um, some younger than Britney, but a, a lot of your of Britney's um, generation. And I think, you know, it's an enormous privilege uh, to be to play a part in that. Mm -hmm. um, and I suppose, you know, I just want to keep doing it and go deeper. You know, that's my main mm -hmm. goal. So how do you right go deeper now. then? Yeah. Well, I think it's a question of being very present, you know, getting involved um, and writing. I love to write about um, our artists' work because it allows me to detach myself from the, the kind of avalanche of stuff that one has to do every day um, and just immerse myself for two or three days in that artist's practice and see if I can find, um, you know, a hook when I write about any artist, um, one always has to start with a hook. So I just look at the work. I spend a lot of time looking at the work and trying to cancel out everything that's been said about it, what the artist says about it, what they said to me about it. You know, I try and delete all of that from my mind and just focus on the painting. And it's I, it's constantly thrilling to me that something pops into my head. You know, <laughs> a point of departure. Maybe it's a poem or a po something. I see something in the work and it make, makes me think of... of something I've I've read or seen and and then it just flows from there and um, that's you know intellectually speaking it's it's a sort of source of constant stimulation so that's very um, I feel enormously privileged to to be doing something with my time that gives me so much satisfaction um, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah I'm I'm sort of a mother hen I think to a lot of our artists and I you know I enjoy that too that gives me enormous satisfaction so I really, um, I don't want to sound smug because, of course, but, but I think like Brittany, um, goals change and shift. You know, at the moment, uh, you know, I turned 50 last year, which was quite shocking. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't be saying this in an interview, should I? I should be, I should be faking it. Um, 
tell everyone I'm still 39. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's um, it's a sort of moment of reckoning, isn't it? Um, and I just have to pinch myself really that I am where I am. I feel incredibly lucky. Mm. So mm. yeah, I have no I have no kind of uh, more complex aspirations except to be able to continue doing what I'm doing to the best of my ability and um, and hope that it helps people, you know, in some way. That's fantastic. All right, so listen, I think, um, uh, unfortunately, we have to um, finish this conversation, close it. I could go on for hours, especially opening up a bottle <laughs> of wine, you know, <laughs> just <laughs> having a nice meal and co continue the conversation, but that's for next time. Yeah. All right, so if I want to experience Brittany Leanne Williams at Stora Sundby, what do I have to do? Because I understand it's not really open to the public, or is it? How do I get into the castle? <laughs> well, um, this is the thing. It's uh, it's not open to the public. It's a private um, exhibition. And mm -hmm. the way we do it is we invite, um, on Sunday we have a, um, an event where we bring tons of people down from Stockholm, um, a lot of museum curators, um, some press collectors, uh, writers, all sorts of people. Um, uh, so in that sense, it's, um, of course, it's, frustrating that it's it's we we can't um bring in a bigger audience but that is the nature of this very special collaboration and i think uh britney you talk so eloquently about um this the richness of of being allowed to have this dialogue in that space and um and i think that's really the the purpose of the mm. of the exercise is um something that's very special and rare that's a gift to the artist and also a gift to, to the place of course mm -hmm. yeah. so we record this on uh, february 17th um sunday is going to be then uh, february 19th um but if if someone is listening to this a couple of months um you know uh, into the future Brittany, what's what's next for you Ah, yeah. So um, I'm doing a project with Alexander Bergroen, um, the ga a gallery I work with um, in New York. Alex is great. And then I have a project I'm working with um, in Antwerp, a gallery called New Child Gallery. So mm -hmm. those are the two things that are on the horizon. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Okay, so Brittany, thank you so much. Catherine as well. Great conversation. As I said, I could go on for hours and hours. But um, this was The Art Bystander, a podcast about contemporary future art. I'm Roland Philippe Kretschmer. Thank you so much. Thank you.